everything that I do includes all of my health stuff, all of the biohacking stuff, all of the coaching work that I do and the trauma resolution work that I do. Essentially, trying to allow people to really take up all of their space in the world. That's what I do for people. It's time to create a life that's better than your dreams with the I Heart My Life show. I'm Emily Williams, the founder of I Heart My Life and your I Heart My Life show host. This is your one-stop shop for all things personal development meets lifestyle. So pull up a seat, get out a pen and a paper and get ready to learn. Welcome to the I Heart My Life show, Victoria. I'm so excited for this conversation. I know it's going to be super juicy and a lot of the topics that we're going to be covering are things that many of our students are very interested in. So welcome and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Emily. It's a privilege to get to talk to you here. So I know that your story has lots of twists and turns, lots of hard moments that have brought you to this point. So I'd love for you to take us back and just share how you even got into this work, what led you here, and a little bit more about your journey. Well, you're right with the twists and turns. So yes, I essentially I began slightly before what my story technically begins. So I got unwell at age 17. And so I was on holiday and uh, ended up being very violently sick. And that night when I was ill changed the course of my life forever. Um, and prior to that time, I had been a little bit exposed to some of the what would have been called new age back then. This is kind of 2003, 2004 time. Um, and I was exposed to something called human design and something called Gene Keys, was, which was just coming online. Um, but that was my mom's thing. I was an all interested. And then I got unwell and ended up really needing help. So I started in the personal development world trying to work out what was happening. Was this a... I would, the symptoms were I was being very unwell, very sick. And so I was thinking, is this a, a mental health condition? Is this a physical condition? I really didn't know and wasn't being helped very much by the medical establishment. And so that started a journey of really looking inward and trying to do my inner work and the personal development and all of the books that are now really common that we were trying to find, like energy medicine, healing and things like that, um, which was where I began. Um, and things didn't massively change. I changed as a human being, but didn't physically get a lot better. And it actually took 10 years and many misdiagnoses and many long hospitalizations and near-death experiences. But I eventually got a diagnosis and I have what is known as a genetic connective tissue disorder, which is something that is quite rare, but had caused a lot of problems for me. And so I thought, okay, I've got diagnoses, labels, I'm going to have answers and medication. It's going to be awesome. This is great. And that's not how it worked. I reacted to all of the medication and the doctors were very much like, you're going to have to work it out yourself. And so I did. So I studied functional medicine, naturopathy, nutrition, and, and lots of specialisms within those areas, just trying to find my own answers um, and ended up having to qualify myself because I couldn't find a doctor or a professional who'd worked with my conditions before. And so with all of that, ended up setting up my own functional medicine and nutrition practice in Harley Street in London. Um, and then eventually over the time realized that a lot of what I was doing was coaching work and more inner work. People really needed the inner world stuff. There was a lot of trauma that had been the instigating factor in people's illnesses and people's symptoms. So I decided to like blend everything that I did from all of the human design, which I'd ended up studying way back at the beginning of my illness, and the gene keys, which I was a part of the, the very early stages of developing, all the way through to all of the functional medicine, nutrition, and 
the biohacking stuff that I ended up doing with the health optimization world. And so blending all of those things together and developed a really robust interpretive healing protocol, set of protocols for very many people. So that's the that's the nutshell version of my very long history. Wow. And so did you find that it was the combination of many things that supported you in your own health as well? Absolutely. And I think without any single one of those ingredients, I would have not got better, um, including the diagnosis, the understanding, the psychological locking in of a label. Whilst I didn't want to attach to it, it actually helped me really forgive and have compassion for a lot of what I'd been through. And that's such a such a foundational piece for healing and self-acceptance that that was really important. But it really was recognizing the self-work and the nutrition, you know, the physiological foundations, the emotional well-being, the mental resilience, and then the connection, community, people, but also connection spiritually into purpose. It was kind of all of it mattered. Everything mattered. Yeah. And it took you a good 10 years to start to heal. Yeah. So I, I think probably in, in total, it was about 13 years before I really turned the corner of healing. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How I'm curious to know about your own strength there and resilience. I'm sure that there were many moments where you wanted to give up. I'm assuming that. But like, what kept you going? How did you continue on this path and keep searching for the answers? I think I'm incredibly lucky to be really stubborn. <laughs> so I was like, this has to be a problem I can fix. Like, come on, this universe, this can't not work. So that's one element. And that I think was God-given and, and innate in me. I have a very close relationship with my mom. And I really believe very strongly that I would not have got through this without her undying support. And that doesn't mean she always was on my side and believed everything I said. You know, there's a lot of doubt. There was a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of question marks over my identity and, and who I was saying I was. But she was always there reflecting back to me, you know, compassion and honesty and come on, like, please, please get better. So I think that was a big factor. And I also think that my interest, curiosity, just like I joked that this has to be a problem I can fix. But that level of like being a, a riddle that I needed to resolve was the energy with which I approached quite a lot of this. So you are absolutely right. There were really desperate times and there were times where not I wanted to give up, but more like I didn't know whether I could keep going. Um, and there was always one thing, there was always an ingredient, that a bit of information that would get me over the weekend, or like I'd have a call with someone booked that would get me through the week. And those little incremental things, it didn't really feel like 13 years in total. It kind of felt like lots of micro-segmented journeys. Yeah. And I mean, people often say, turn your pain into your passion. And I've definitely experienced that on a smaller scale than what you're describing here. But I'm always curious to know for people who have experienced 13 years of illness and question marks and not having a solution, do you feel grateful for that because it led you here? Or like, what is your your emotion around it? It's interesting because I'm very careful, obviously, with my clients as well. Like, you can't be grateful for it in the middle of it. That's, that's a total, you know, mind loop that you can't run. Um, but I do feel immensely grateful. I feel like there was a, there's a deep privilege in having to struggle because I learned so much about myself, but also I developed so much resilience that I would never have had. And I learned so much that I can now help other people with. And when I, speak to people and I just know something that I know from my own experience. It's a 
It's a different relationship that my clients, my patients, and people get to have with me because they know that I'm not just saying it. They know that I didn't read it in a book and just like reciting it. They know I know how hard it was. And I'm I'm so grateful for the life I get to live now. I, I it blows my mind when I look around and go, Oh wow, this is this is what I do. This is who I am and how I live. And I know that every single really hard moment had to be there in order for me to get here. Wow. I love how you said it was a privilege. The struggle was a privilege for you. Um, because how often are we not looking at it like that? And like you said, when, when you're in the midst of it and it's an open wound, it's very challenging and hard to process that. But I mean, looking back to all of my struggles as well, I feel the same, but I've never used the verbiage privilege. And I just want to highlight that for people because that's so powerful. It is. It is. When we, when we orient things differently, it changes our relationship to them. And, you know, I, I got to live through all of that. Not I had to or it was a hard thing and now I'm moving on. I carry my past with me and I'm very intentional as I do that because I think that it's not, oh, that happened and I'm over it. It's that breathes through every single moment of my day today. And I know that your, what you experienced, you said it was, um, tell me again, it was genetic. What was the, the verbiage? Yeah, it's a connective tissue disorder. So it's actually called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, but it's a genetic condition that I was born with and that it runs in my family. And it's obvious now, but it just wasn't obvious at the time. Got it. But you mentioned a lot of your patients experienced trauma that affected their health. So what were some of the patterns that you saw or what were the types of trauma that people were experiencing? And the reason I want to highlight that is because we've had a couple of of medical professionals on the show recently, uh, in particular one who had cancer. And he's a, um, an, a, an amazing doctor, but he was basically talking about how it wasn't the medical industry that supported him in healing, it was really his mindset work and working through some of the past experiences that he had. So what were some of the patterns that you saw or what are some of the insight you can give us in terms of how trauma affects health for people who aren't really used to this conversation and go straight to medicine, drugs, all those things? Thank you for the question. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful platform to be able to speak about this because you know that this is my passion about getting people to understand these links. And what I have noticed is that bodies are relatively resilient. Even with my kind of genetic situation, that's not the reason I broke. Like the breaking happened through multiple overtime traumas and then an eventual physiological event. And it really is important to understand that everything about our body runs on our nervous system. And the nervous system is the informational architectural highway that communicates how to run all of the processes. There's so much going on physiologically on a second by second basis that has to have communication on board for it, for the body to be able to function. And most of it should be automatic. And essentially, the way I like to think of traumatic events and the influence they have is Trauma and the lingering imprint of a traumatic experience interferes with that nervous system communication. It either creates resistance or friction or just stagnation because essentially you go into a brace position when you're traumatized. Everything about you tenses up. And unless your body is allowed to metabolize and complete that trauma loop, if you like, the whole cycle of being having a trigger, going into a stress state, and then coming back into regulation, if you're not able to do that whole process, some of that charge remains. And over time, the charge that remains can create physiological consequences. And so very common to look at 
things like autoimmune conditions or immune dysregulation and know that that there's a fragment of that 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 is genetic it's part of the way the genetics are coded but the reason it is expressed the reason it starts up is usually too much stress in the system and that can be general stress daily stress life is too stressful but usually it's a combination of the daily stress coupled with some of those unmetabolized trauma habits that should have been completed that kind of get stuck in the system. And our bodies are really intelligent. They remember trauma because they don't want it to happen again. It's a really good way of making sure you don't go back to the situation that you were in when you were last traumatized. Then that's protective. It's adaptive and protective. But actually as a pattern that gets set up, it keeps us away from certain experiences. So even interaction, social interaction, if we have a traumatizing social interaction, we become hesitant. We hold ourselves back we're suffocating ourselves from community, from connection, from humaning with people, that has an impact. And over time, that creates more stress in the system that can lead to any number of illnesses. And so there's a lot of patterns that you can see. But if we start from the understanding that every set of symptoms, the diagnosis, is a system breakdown somewhere, and the communication between those systems is done by the nervous system, we can start to unpick some of the links. Amazing. And I love how you described that it's not always expressed until there is like a level of trauma there or something else to work through. And so you see certain patterns with people or some of your previous clients, like are there certain categories of trauma that uh, would come up for your patients more than others? It's interesting because it's more to do with the fact that there are certain types of trauma that leave a pattern, but the symptom can be anything. So that is where the genetic specificity kind of comes in. So what I tend to see is, so I like to think of all traumas as something to do with boundary, rupture, or lack of being met. So if you imagine everyone has a boundary, most traumas involve either someone infringing on that boundary, so a boundary rupture, or someone not giving you enough, someone not giving you love, needs not being met. And that's the boundary not being met effectively. And so what we have then is this kind of sense of I'm not enough. And as soon as you get an I'm not enough or people are allowed to step into my space, there is this latent frequency within the body. And by frequency, I'm not being woo-woo. I mean like energetically, the nervous system is remembering that there is a need to either strive harder. And so when people feel like I'm not enough, maybe needs weren't met, we tend to get the, the illnesses that are associated with overcompetition. So type A people that then get burnt out or you know, hormonal dysregulation can occur because the body doesn't have enough to do normal cycles. So it's doing kind of real stress physiology, prioritizing that as opposed to a natural, say, menstrual cycle for women. And so typically with the needs not being met trauma stuff, we get the conditions which are associated with pushing the engine way too hard. And then with boundary rupture, so something encroaching on our boundaries, we get this minimizing. So I see a lot of digestive issues with people who've had boundary rupture trauma because there's just this caving in and a slowness to the system. So people get gut health issues. We can get autoimmune or immune dysregulation in both categories. But if you think about immune dysregulation, it's the body's fighting army doesn't know who to fight or how hard to fight. That's a real common consequence of there was a boundary rupture. Somebody came into and I didn't fight or I didn't know how to fight. And now I'm fighting everything perhaps with food intolerances is a really common one. And so all of these patterns, if you start to think more kind of symbolically a little bit about what is the body trying to say, we end up with understanding that there's a lot of work that we can do by supporting the nervous system repatterning that can completely alleviate some of the symptoms that are the symptoms as a result, the consequences, if you like. And what does nervous system repatterning look like in your work with clients? 
Yeah. And there's many ways you can do it. And sometimes I like to keep it super simple. So nervous systems are designed to be in the present moment. And trauma is everything that takes us out of the present moment. It really keeps us like past casting or future casting because we're trying to map all the exits and stay safe. So a real good way to start simple with nervous system repatterning is to really be present in every single moment. And that's a great thing to say and not pretty easy to do. I hope you loved today's episode. Just so you know, Victoria is going to be one of the incredible guest experts talking all about human design and the I Hurt My Life membership. So go to IHurtMyLife.com slash membership to learn more and save your seat in the program today. So I start with like real connection to the body. So it's not, I have to be in this body loving it all the time. It's like three times a day, let's set an alert on my phone and like just check in with myself. Like, what am I experiencing right now as a sensation? And what emotions coming up? You don't need to do anything with it. You don't need to process it or journal about it. You just notice. And the more we can stay in these present moments, the more we are in contact with what's reality as opposed to the trauma instigated future casting or retrospectively worrying. And you can do all sorts of exercises, like a really lovely one that I have on my Zoom welcome screen is orienting. So people can just sit in a spot and notice three things in the room that stand out to them. And then think about them so hard as if they were about to explain them in detail to somebody else who can't see them. And what you're doing is just really getting into the present moment because all you can do is think about the thing that you're focusing on. And it becomes this incredible grounding process that is stabilizing you in this present moment. And over time, there's bigger things that we can do. So somatic experiencing therapy is a great bigger therapeutic exercise for people who have major trauma, and that can help literally metabolize out the time of the event. So some people are really stuck in an event, and we can actually support the repatterning around that event. But if you don't have access to that, we start simple and we do the very simple kind of just be present. What's here? What's here and what's next is kind of the only questions you need to know the answers to. And yet as human beings, we're always trying to know what's next year, what's in the next decade. So yeah, it's a real present moment stuff. I love that you gave that example because it really simplifies this for people and it's something they can do right away. And I think even, you know, for me in moments of overwhelm, it's like practicing taking things day by day because we can, like you said, go so far into the future and that can create overwhelm. It can create doubt and, you know, question marks around what's next, which can trigger the nervous system and send us into overdrive. Of course. And, and if you think about the definition of trauma, it's too much too fast or too little for too long. And if you are the person who's piling on the too much because you're always thinking about the million and one things in the future, you're kind of miniature traumatizing yourself about thinking that you have to do all of it now because you physically can't. So the less that we can be, and obviously, you know, business strategy, you have to plan, you know, the plans happen. It's not not planning. It's just where do you spend your time when you're trying to physically orient? And that has to be in the present moment. Beautiful. So how do you interweave all of that that we've just discussed and things like human design and gene keys? Because I know that a lot of our community is new to human design, but it's definitely something that has changed my life and also changed my marriage in that James and I understand that we're very different when it comes to our makeup in that sense. We work very differently and we've learned that, you know, I think for many years we made each other wrong because we didn't work in the same way. We weren't showing up and doing life in the same way. So now it's like created this level of acceptance and understanding of ourselves that we can use to guide us in our decision-making, planning of our day, strategy, all the things, um, and just in our relationship with each other. So can we start with human design and have you share a little bit more about that? 
Of course, yeah. Um, so human desires, it's crazy that it's where I started because it was so not cool at the time. <laughs> but now it's like everyone wants a mini human design reading from me. And I trained for eight years with Ra Uruhu, who was the person who received the transmission about human design. So I have a real depth of understanding in it. And the way I use it is firstly, self-awareness. So if we're back on how do you get in touch with the present moment? Well, really knowing yourself, knowing how you work and not like you just said beautifully, not making yourself wrong for not doing it the way your friend does or your partner does or your parents want you to. All of that brings you closer and into more intimate relationship with just you, just who you are. And so human design is a complex mechanical system which essentially takes planetary alignment and maps it into what is known as a body graph. But by doing that, we actually have a, a, a template of who you are from the perspective of energetic strengths and weaknesses. So we can see where you're strong and consistent and dependable as you, and therefore how you move through the world, how your aura literally tracks through the world and how best it is to make decisions and to approach people depending on what we call your type. Um, and so with, with that information, you can remove a lot of the doubt, a lot of the future casting, a lot of the fear, because you have this grounding of knowing okay, so this is where I'm strong. I don't ever need to worry about that thing that I, I can't do. That's not a me area. But you also understand how to really, really feel in your life. So making decisions authentically as yourself and knowing that other people have different ways of doing it. So I always like for partners to get their designs because it's like you're kind of missing each other with communication if you don't know how the other person is operating, fundamentally, energetically operating. And it's a bit like, Love languages, knowing knowing what it is just makes everything easier. Well, same with human design, like knowing someone doesn't have a sacral center, so isn't a generator, so can't work all the time. It's actually really helpful when you're a generator and you're like, what is with their work ethic? It's like, it's not an ethic thing. It's an impossibility for them. And so I dance with human design. It depends on the client as to where I put it in. Oftentimes with men, I put it right at the start of any coaching container because it's cognitive. It gives their brain something to do. Because all of this nervous system repatterning stuff can feel a bit not doing anything. It can feel a bit wishy-washy. And somatics is like, oh, it's all body and closed eye exercises. And so giving them some mechanical like structure helps. Um, but I really use it as, a, as an additional tool in my toolkit of supporting people to develop their relationship with self. Because ultimately, when we're talking anything to do with trauma, boundary rupture, the traumas themselves, the illnesses, all of these things slightly disconnect us from feeling safe with ourselves. And the more we can feel safe with ourselves, the easier life flows. And that's actually healing. Safety is healing. So human design is a tool for helping people feel safe. And I've just given someone a mini human design reading here. And they were like, oh, I feel so seen. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. You, you kind of feel seen. It shouldn't be a surprise, a human design reading. It should feel deeply validating and then give you tools with, with which to navigate the more challenging moments. And I think it's so interesting because I've been seeing a lot of my friends who are parents actually get readings for their kids. And I was talking to my sister-in-law about it the other day because I said to her, I said, I have a feeling my niece is the same human design as me just based on, like, she's only one, but just the way that she shows up and, like, she's so, she's doing all these things. And it ended up that she is a manifesting generator, which is what I am as well. And I know there's more to it than that. But can you briefly just describe the um, different types within human design? Of course. Yeah, there is, there's so much detail in human design. And it's also really, 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 really simple. So, Getting someone who can dance between those two, it's like you're looking for a reader, find someone who makes it sound simple because that's the person to go to because they'll have done the complicated bit for you. But yeah, so the four, four types, although 
because it's you, I'm going to say there's five. Um, <laughs> so the four types in human design, the major type, the most dominant type is generators. And generators are the workers of the planet. They are the builders. They have what is known as the sacral center. It is literally a generator. It is a motor. It's an engine. And so generators are the only type who are really built to work. And we can work and work and work. And we have this kind of energy bucket and we use it and then we sleep and then we wake up and we have the same energy bucket again the next day. And so generators are very good at doing nine to five jobs and having all of the kind of workhorse output. The sneaky half extra type, which is Emily, which is a manifesting generator, is a combination of two types. And essentially it works out because of the mechanics of how it fits in the chart. But manifesting generators have both the ability to manifest and the generator energy bucket. And the trick for manifesting generators is that they can't let their manifestiveness take over because their generator center has to be on board because everything that they want to manifest, they have to have the energy to do. And that's the whole thing with manifesting generators. I always say to my manifesting generators, make lots of lists because you're going to have a ton of ideas and you are not going to have the energetic capacity to do them all. So if you make a ton of lists, then you've got them somewhere and you feel safer because you put it on a list but you know that you're not going to get to it. And you use the the generator. What does my energy resonate with on that list? As So as, as kind of a how to know which idea to pursue, basically. And so manifesting generators are still generators. They have their like, lowest common denominator is their energy center, but they do have all of these like great manifesting capacities as well um, and are quite powerful energies as everyone listening to this podcast will have witnessed with Emily. So that's the kind of two energy types. Um, manifestors themselves have all of the initiating capacity. So manifestors really can make waves. And I like to describe manifestors as like the, the rock that goes into a pool of water and literally makes all the ripples. That's the power of a manifestor. They're known in the kind of jargon of human design to have what we call a repelling aura, which is not a very nice thing to say to a manifestor, but it just means they make waves. They push the tide and the trajectory of energy but they don't have the energy to follow through. So they really need generators in their lives. The key for manifestors is informing that they're about to jump into the puddle because otherwise they kind of make lots of ripples and everyone else is kind of shocked by the ripple effect of what they do. So it's really important for manifestors to have an awareness of their own impact. It's really important for manifestors. And speaking of kids, actually, parents knowing that their child is a manifestor is so helpful because parenting is a lot of, please don't do that, no, don't, no, like trying to catch the child from running away. Manifestors have to do all of that testing the boundaries is what they're here to do. So the thing with manifestor kids is developing that dialogue when they're old enough of asking permission. Like, please, can I do this? Yes, okay. And then they go and jump off the building that was way too high to jump off. All of that crazy stuff. Well, can I say something really quick? James is a manifester, and he told me a story about how when he was little, they were on a trip in Greece, and the elevator stopped halfway in between the floors. And he literally climbed out of the elevator on the top. And right when he got out of there onto the, the, the different floor, the elevator started to move. And so I was like, oh my gosh. And he did stuff like that all the time. And it's exactly what you're saying, like testing the boundaries. Yes. And it's such a manifesto thing to do because they just don't see the obstacle. They're like, I have to be able to get out of this elevator. So they're just going to do it. And whereas a generator would be sitting there responding to the elevator and like going through the process of being stuck in an elevator because generators can't do anything different. We have to be in the, can we call the emergency button? Can we do this? Whereas manifestors just will find the way out of the problem. It's it's great to have a manifestor in your life because <laughs> they just like do stuff. Yeah. So traveling with James will be amazing because he'll just like, like in airports, just like navigate the way through to the, the central, like yeah, awesome. <laughs> Hopefully in a safe way. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah. And also um, having pairings of these people, it, like there isn't, everyone says to me, oh, should I find a fill in the blank type as my partner? No, everything can work. It's just about understanding it to make it work. So it swims nicely. And then we have projectors and reflectors. So projectors are relatively common. Um, projectors have all of the insights. They are very, very able to see underneath the skin of people, basically. Um, and they really can, they're quite, they can be quite quiet and they take a step back and they really observe and they have a lot of insight as to the solution or people's problems, etc. Um, the key for projectors is to wait to be invited to share their insights. And the reason for that is that it's not very nice if you see all of someone's problem and then just tell them it without them inviting you. But the other reason is projectors really love to be validated for their insights. They love recognition. And so if you volunteer an insight that nobody asked for, nobody says thank you. So for projectors, their chemistry works if they wait for the invitation and then get invited, share their insights, and then everyone is super grateful. Um, so projectors need to develop that art of just being patient and trusting that people are going to come to them when the time is right for them. So that's projectors. And reflectors are very rare, less than kind of 1% of humanity. And reflectors in a human design chart have no centers defined. So they essentially only have little gates is what we call them instead of channels, which would define centers. Reflectors have a what we call a Teflon aura. So they're effectively a non-stick. They don't pick up all the energy in the same way. But as a result, they can be very kind of airy-fairy and not very grounded. They also need tons of time alone because every time they're in the world, they're filled with everyone else's energy. And so reflectors really have to move much slower. They have to move with the pace of the moon is what we say. And so basically taking, for big decisions, taking months to make them just to make sure that all of their bits and pieces feel safe and secure in that. So reflectors are a, a rare breed. I know a couple. I've had probably two reflector readings in my entire career, so... And so for everyone listening, I know that there are many places you can go to figure out your human design, and it's based on your birth location, birth time, and your name. Is that right? No, name's not important. So it's just uh, time, place, and date. So date, time, place. And place is only for time zone. So it's just, that's all it is. It's a, it's a planetary alignment, a bit like astrology. And so for those, I'll just ask you this. I've never been able to ask anyone before. So my understanding is that this the the creator of human design, like it was basically a download for him. Is that correct? Yeah, he went into a cave in Ibiza. So he was Canadian, um, like totally not spiritual, chain smoking, coffee drinking, Canadian man running a business and went to Ibiza and was basically having a personal crisis. Um, he went into a cave and I think three days later, or maybe seven days, I lose track of time in some of these things, but a little while later came out with all of the drawings, everything, all of the system downloaded and spent the next years codifying it to then teach it. So yes, it was a transmission. So like with all these spiritual things, transmissions that just come to people in these weird circumstances, yes, Ra did go into a cave, not as Ra, and then came out Ra Uruhu. He was given the name and it was a very kind of mystical experience. And so I asked this question because I know that there are people who will look this up and be skeptical about this random man coming out of a cave with this whole system. But you have spent many, many years using this tool in your own practice and in your own work. And I know through our relationship and time together that you have a spiritual side, but you also have a very practical, tangible side. So I'd love for you to just speak to like, were there any doubts in your mind? And if so, have you seen the proof in the pudding as you've used this with your clients? It's such a great question. Um, tons of doubts in my mind tons of doubts I still like think really 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 
every time I do this for anyone, people go, wow, that makes sense. That That's me. And the deeper, so we've just done types. Like you can get so deep in readings and the deeper you go, effectively you're doing more micro fractions and breaking up the whole uh, planetary alignment stuff. And people really resonate to it. Even when I'm doing like outer planetary analysis, outer planetary analysis for people it becomes very um very specific to who they are and it's eerie sometimes how much some of this is so appropriate also like historical stuff that really fits with their design and illnesses as well so you know all of the the centers have energy around them they're they're an energetic center so i really can track some of the illnesses to the way things manifest and develop from the human design perspective so i at one point in my life, I wanted to totally throw it out. I was like, no, 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 no. Um, and then the more I do it, the more I'm astounded. And also, it's an experiment. Nobody needs to believe it. People can just do it and try it and see if their life works better. And I am always of the opinion that anything that you have to make a leap of belief to get onto, it's it, we're in belief territory. And if it makes your life better and additive, then who's to say that we shouldn't have that belief? especially when it comes to something like human design, because essentially it's a framework about getting back into your body because every single type, doesn't matter whether you're any one of the four or five, no one is making decisions with their mind. Everything is about rooting it back into the body. How does your generator center feel? Have you waited for the invitation? Are you kind of waiting for the cycles of the moon? Are you kind of following your impulses as a manifester? Nothing is mental decision-making. So when we're looking at Buddhist philosophy, all of the Eckhart Tolle work of be here now, all of it is be with the body because the mind is just making up stories. And if human design is the framework through which people get to that and get to living through that, then it's great in my opinion. Mm, I love that. Yeah. If it enhances your life and makes things easier and and helps you understand and have that self-awareness and also, like you said, presence is you in the body when you're making decisions. Why not choose to follow it and use it as a tool in your toolbox? Right. And I think the one caution I would say is that people get their design and then use it as an excuse. Like somebody said to me the other day that a friend of hers has just been told that she's a projector. And now she's literally saying she's not doing anything until she gets invited formally everywhere. And I'm like, that's that's an abstraction. That's taking it a little bit too far. And people do like, oh, that's just my, you know, my open spleen or whatever. And that that's not same with anything. That's just using something as an excuse, but as a framework and as a as a stability grounding. And just to say as well, from a personal perspective, we talk about seven years of deconditioning with human design. Effectively, every single cell in your body is a new cell after seven years. So effectively, you need to be experimenting for seven years before you're really living your design. And people hate that. People are like, ooh, can I not do it more quickly? I hate that. <laughs> You've met me. I'm like, can I not run at this like a bullet in a china shop? Because that would make it easier. Uh, no, it's seven years. And I've now done three seven-year cycles. And every cycle, I become more of a generator. I'm a pure generator and I become more responsive. And people say to me, well, why did you move to Africa? Or why did you move to Austin? I'm like, just responded. It's just it just happened. That's about the explanation I give because I just responded. Somebody said, "Do you want to come to Austin?" And I was like, "Yeah." Uh, my body went, "Yeah." So I'm here. So I think over time, people prove it to themselves. And how do you know what cycle you're in or what stage of the cycle? It's just you're in. when you got your first design and when you started experimenting, that's when the clock starts, and then you just add up seven years. So and you don't need to be experimenting religiously all the time. Because so much of this is decisions, it's like how you move through the world is influenced. So you're just kind of orienting differently. And so 
the first three and a half years, you kind of half remember to respond if you're a generator and half you're just making mental decisions. Then second three and a half years, you're kind of more responding than you are mentally processing the things. And then after that first seven year cycle, you kind of turn around and go, oh, I'm I'm doing my life totally differently now. I'm not sitting down and I never write a pros and cons list for anything. <laughs> it's like, that's not how I make decisions. I don't do worst case scenarios. I don't do mental computation. I just feel into it for personal decisions. Obviously, I run businesses. So like I have a structure strategy brain for that sort of stuff. But a lot of the time, and, and you know this about me, when somebody says something that's a really good business idea, it has to pass my generator sacral response. But otherwise, it's not happening because I can't, I can't sit there and do it if, it if it doesn't feel here right physically. Yeah, same. Yeah, I, I wish in some ways I wish I could just do something even if it wasn't like my heart was completely in it. But that is not how I'm built. No. And and I think the more I think the more you do like personal development, development work in general, but also when you have your design and you know that you have to resonate with it, you have to respond to it, the more impossible it becomes. It's almost more frustrating. Yeah, you're right. So with our remaining time, I'd love for you to also just dive into a little bit about Gene Keys, because I know that's been a powerful tool in your toolbox as well. So can you share a little bit about that? Of course. And I think what people don't realize is that Gene Keys is a twin system to human design. So it's the same 64 archetypes in both systems that we're using, and your chart is the same. It's the same planets in the same places. It just looks different because it's visually different. Um, and the way we talk about the words is different. But Richard Rudd, who, who again, transmission received in 2004, um, he, he developed Gene Keys. Uh, he was a human design uh, teacher for a long, long time. So same kind of archetypal understanding, but Gene Keys is much more spiritual. Gene Keys is very much a contemplation on the archetypes of the 64 gates or 64 Gene Keys. These are all the 64 gates of the ancient Chinese I Ching. So we've been talking about these archetypes of humanity for millennia. And so we're still understanding this as the 64 essential energetic elements of what makes us human. Um, and they also map to the 64 codons of the genetic human DNA, which is also fascinating. Um, but Gene Keys is a, it's a much more soft system. It's very contemplative and it allows for people to really understand the energetic imprints of how they are coded to show up in this life. And so there are essentially three sequences currently within the Gene Key system. One is all about the activation sequences. It's just life's work, life's purpose, you know, these grounding pillars of who you are and how you serve in your life that when contemplated, these Gene Keys archetypes can really unlock your, your purpose and your passion. Um, so that's a beautiful sequence. The sequence that is very dear to my heart, because I received one of the first ever readings on this, is the Venus sequence. And this is all to do with relationships. And I use this a lot with my clients because it's all to do with how we get triggered, how we shut ourselves down when we get triggered, and what our core wounding is. So what we're really trying to protect when we are feeling triggered. And it's a beautiful uh, dance through understanding your trigger patterns and often your partner's trigger patterns or your, your colleague's trigger patterns because you can really stop a lot of the chaos that can happen when you you know when you start an argument and then suddenly you're like a million miles away and you can't even remember how it began. This is all just triggers happening. And if you understand the way you're protecting yourself and what you're protecting yourself from, it kind of allows for a lot of healing to move through relationships. So especially for people who are trying to have conscious relationships, I'm a very big proponent of using the Venus sequence because it allows for a language of common communication around all of that. And then we have the pearl sequence, which is all about prosperity. So the pearl is how to 
have culture and your branding and that, but not from a business structure perspective, from an energetic archetypal perspective. So it's a very beautiful kind of sequence that allows you to understand how abundance is manifested through you based on your archetypes. Mm, thank you for explaining that. And I love this because, you know, in the work that we we both do in the world, sometimes people are tempted to create one size fits all experiences. But by understanding this, not only about yourself, but also your clients and the other people in your life, you can tailor it to that person and recognize that not everyone is built the same. And so the formula for life and, and how they move through the world and relationships and abundance is going to be different for everyone. Yeah. And I, I train my coaches in my academy on this very thing. So I train them in human sign and a little bit of gene keys because I believe that the more you know about your clients, if you're a coach, the more you can serve them rather than just believing that everyone computes things the same way because we don't and we really don't run our lives the same way as each other. So understanding, it's just it's just nice to feel like you're extending a little bit more care to the individual in front of you. Yeah. And speaking of your work, so we've covered a lot of ground. You're obviously brilliant. You've been doing this for many, many years. You love what you do. That comes across. Who are your ideal clients? Who do you love to work with? How do people work with you and how do they find you? So I like to work with anybody who feels like they've got a big vision in the world that they are trying to fulfill, but there's something in their way, whether that's a physiological thing or um, some kind of personal blockage. Something feels like it's not quite allowing them to reach their potential. And so I work very holistically. So with my clients, especially my coaching clients that I take on for you know months at a time, everything that I do includes all of my health stuff, all of the biohacking stuff, all of the coaching work that I do and the trauma resolution work that I do. Essentially, trying to allow people to really take up all of their space in the world. That's what I do for people. And so I really love anyone who feels like they have a big mission and they just need the, the team of support. And so I work alone, but I also bring in teams of people to support people to allow them to really achieve their vision and take up all of the space and bring their gifts to humanity. Mm, so amazing. I feel like when people go into that container with you, it's like they're almost reborn as their true self. And like there aren't all these things in the way anymore. And I know it's not like a magic pill and it takes time, but bringing in all those different components, I feel like it's just like removing all the barriers. I mean, my company's called Unveil. So that's that's why we do it. That's why it's called that. And I love that you say that because it is. It's removing the gunk that you didn't choose to put in your way, but life and circumstances and the experiences you've been through has closed you down a little bit. And my I see my job as allowing people to really unveil their true self. And so, yeah, it's a very much a, a removal, not an addition process. And where can people find you? So I can be found at unveilenterprises.com. People can find me anywhere. I have my academy. Anything Unveil, you'll find me. And also my podcast. So the Unveil podcast is on Instagram and also online. Love it. And you're going to be one of our incredible guest experts in the membership coming up. So if anyone is interested in that as well and learning more from Victoria in that way, you can go to iheartmylife.com slash membership. And my final question for you is one we ask all of our guests. So what would you say is one way our listeners can create a life that's better than their dreams and far exceeds their expectations? Find the people you want to live your life with. I am such a believer in family and connections, soul family, chosen family. And I always think that you will go so much farther and have a life beyond your expectations if you're doing it with your soul family. Mm. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I know people are going to be 
checking out your website, all of your work, Googling human design, doing all the things. Um, I really, really appreciate your time, your energy, and just all of your wisdom. So thank you for being here. No, thank you, Emily. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the I Heart My Life show. Now do us a favor and tell people about this episode. It's truly our duty to make sure that the I Heart My Life movement is spread far and wide. The truth is life can be challenging, but it is possible for all women to love themselves and their lives. And while you're at it, send a link to this episode to three of your friends today, or maybe even post it on social media. Use the hashtag I Heart My Life Show. That's hashtag I Heart My Life Show. And if you'd like to help me personally, then please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give us some stars, cheer us on, and leave a review because believe it or not, that stuff actually really does help. And I read all of them. Please remember everything you desire is meant for you and possible. Keep showing up, taking action, and believing in your dreams.